If you're looking for a place to become holy, the nursery and children's church is a great place to learn how to be more holy because you will be challenged. Um, We have some very vivacious children in there. Uh, Most of them are mine. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther with me. Chapter 3, as we continue our series about living in exile. And what does it look like to live in exile? And I want to open us in prayer because um, I need the Lord's help more than, than ever for, this, this, for some reason this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we come before you as beggars in desperate need of, of everything. Uh, Lord, we, we repent and we repent of our repentance, Father, because we are so inadequate to the task that you have called us to. Lord, we rest in your sovereign will. We rest in your uh, divine plan. God, as we open this passage in Esther, we see a world that is seeking to destroy your people. Father, as we look up and into the news, we see a world that is seeking to destroy your people. Nothing has changed when it comes to that, Father, but we know that you are in control and you are redeeming things. Things are being redeemed. And so, Father, Uh, As your people, we cry out to you, uh, desperate for food and and water today. Lord, uh, I lift up the pregnancy centers and the churches uh, in hostile areas around the country that are being targeted by those who are angry about the recent Supreme Court ruling. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown to our country by ending that abomination of legalized abortion. Lord, we know it's up to the states, and we know that there are many more battles to fight. But we thank you for this step of victory. Lord, we ask for strength this morning that we would open our minds and our hearts and and pay attention to your word this morning, that we'd be refreshed by the very word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, we pray that it will not return void as you promise. We agree with your word, and we seek to honor you in that. Lord, give us wisdom Uh, through your dear Son, Jesus Christ. And all these things God people said, Amen. So in Esther 3, we're picking up from a series of events. We could almost say a series of of fortunate events, of providentially orchestrated events. God has put into place Mordecai and Esther into the kingdom to influence But now we're going to begin to see why he put them in place. And I think this is very helpful because we don't always get to see what's behind the veil. We don't get to see what's really going on on the world stage. But God interprets his actions through his word. And so as we are reading his word, we begin to see that God has a plan all along. In fact, he even used wicked Ahasuerus or Xerxes, as some translations will point out, he uses him in order to accomplish his task. And we, when living in exile, that is when we're living in a country that is not friendly to your beliefs, and for us as Christians, it's the Christian faith, we need to learn how to navigate complexities of honoring and submitting to the government, yet not compromising our beliefs. Have you ever thought about that before? How do you honor the the emperor and at the same time 
not displease your Lord and Savior Christ. Eventually, the will of the government will be in direct conflict with the will of God for man. At that point, we will need to know how to navigate and face the consequences. And so that's what we learn in this passage of Esther. And I'm calling this passage, or this uh, this sermon, a, a cost of holiness. Because holiness has a cost. Being set apart or separate from the world around you will cost you something. And when I refer to holiness, I'm, I'm describing the requirement that God's people be set apart from others. That doesn't mean that we don't hang out and go to the movies with other people, but it means that we are different. We don't partake in the same debauchery that others. We don't approve the same things. We don't celebrate what the world celebrates. We don't make cakes and throw parties for the same things that they make cakes and throw parties for. As God's people, as believers in the one true God, we are expected to more and more resemble Jesus Christ, which means we don't partake in the things that he died for. Why would we celebrate something that our Savior died to redeem us from? So you will be despised for being holy. Let's look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. And, and just so you know, the setting has been established. Esther is queen and Mordecai is sitting by the king's gate to check on his cousin, his adopted daughter. And so now we have the scene take place. It says, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agite, or Agiite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff of the king's gate bowed down and paid homage or homage, sorry, to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff of the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman. To do away with Mordecai alone, he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So, we learn a little bit about this antagonist. The villain has entered the scene now. Up until now, we haven't really seen the villain. And here he is, Haman. So what do we learn about Haman? Well, first, we have a description. He is an Agiite or Agagite. Now, if you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1-2, Saul the Benjaminite, son of Kish, is ordered to kill Agag. But he doesn't do that, does he? In fact, Samuel has to take matters into his own hand and hack Agag to pieces, which is an exciting story to share with your children. <clears throat> and you know what? He's the king of the Amalekites. So by mentioning Haman as an 
Agaites, the author is pointing to a centuries-old battle. Because Mordecai is a Benjaminite and a descendant of what? Kish. So we see two foes facing off in Persia. So what happened in Israel didn't stay in Israel. right? What happened in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. It, it moved to Persia. And there's this age-old battle. The, the seed of the serpent is continuing to battle against the seed of the woman. God's people are always going to be under threat from that dragon, the devil. And so it's playing out in Persia now. And so what we see is Haman is elevated to a high position in the government. In fact, he's second to the king. He's the king's right-hand man. And this elevation means that the other government officials are expected to bow and show reverence. Almost devotional humbling before him. In fact, Persian custom saw this act of reverence as bordering on recognizing the official as divine. So Haman was almost elevated to divine status. And so the people are expected to almost worship this man. But Mordecai does not bow down. And it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't say because Mordecai thought it was wrong to bow down to him instead of God, because we never hear the word God mentioned in this passage. So we have the problem begin to be exposed and we're not told the exact reason, but there seems to be a twofold reason. If you read between the lines, I think we can get to two points. There's two reasons Mordecai does not bow down or prostrate himself by laying down in front of him. First, I think it's religious. right? By mentioning the fact that he is a Jew, Mordecai would only want to worship the one true God. In fact, he's commanded to be set apart from the rest of the world because the rest of the world worships multiple gods. It doesn't matter. Add another one, right? So what if Haman's a god? We got 17 others to add to him. But Mordecai is a Jew, and he says there's one god. There's only one god that is worthy of our worship. There's only one idol that I will bow down to. No, nothing. God and God alone. No idols. He would seek to be set apart or holy before God. So it doesn't. the text doesn't tell us this exactly. But I think we can deduce that his scruples were religious and as indicated by him being outed as a Jew. Second, I think it's political. I think Mordecai is political. Being from the line of Kish and being a Benjaminite, no self-respecting descendant would show reverence to a descendant of the Amalekites. As a Jew, it would be anathema to him to bow down. It would be kind of like I don't know, Americans bowing down to the uh, Nazi flag or something like that, right? We, we wouldn't do that because we defeated them in battle, right? And so we have the same thing here. It's a political thing as well. Verse 4, it says, When they had warned him day after day. So he's doing this every day. Haman walks through the gate, proud of himself, probably pumped up, chest puffed up high, wearing his fancy rig, wearing his turban, his man dress, everything that he has walking through Persia, thrilled to death with who he is. And Haman's sitting there in the back, kind of just like, not doing it. Do you guys ever see that meme on social media with all the, the people doing the Hitler salute, except for one person in the small corner, and 
typically they'll like make a circle around him. He's the only one standing there like this out of a whole row of people worshiping Hitler. We have that same thing here. But Haman doesn't notice right away, but the people do. The people around him. And they start to say, dude, what are you doing? Get with the program. Why are you not doing this? Word got around to Haman, and the reason was Mordecai was a Jew. Haman was cool with it. No big deal. You worship what you want to worship, I worship what I want to worship. No, he was enraged. He was angry. He was ready to riot in the streets. He was ready to go loot a target. He was angry. He was enraged. His pride and power, his desire for praise was damaged. And so he began to look away, look for a way to destroy the Jewish people. Man, I love how the author of this text puts this. Look in verse 6. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do with Mordecai away with Mordecai alone. Did you, did you see how he worded that? It was gross to him to only want to kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill his whole family. He wanted to cancel everybody. He wanted to cancel them forever. Right? He wanted to hunt down his family, all his ethnic, all his relatives, every single person of the same ethnicity, and destroy them. He wasn't happy just to get rid of Mordecai. He wanted to destroy everybody. We don't have that problem in the States, do we? You know, someone doesn't bake you a cake to celebrate your gay marriage. You don't want to cancel him and ruin his livelihood and mess with his family or anything, right? That doesn't happen. You don't want to burn down the Supreme Court or uh, attack their homes and hurt their family or nothing like that, right? Of course, it's the same thing. Age-old symptoms. And so if you are set apart, if you are different, if you worship something other than what the world worships, you will be despised. You are going to be despised for being holy. Mordecai was different. He did not bow down like the others. He was set apart. Those who believe in a different standard can become angry when we don't bow down to theirs. I think we see that. I think we see that's the culture that we live in. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You ever heard of those guys before? Three men. Good, good answer, Edward. Three men, when brought into exile, also had a similar conflict with the government. I want to read just a little passage. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Are you not bowing down at the altar of self? Verse 15. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zyre, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? A little irony there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. This is how they respond when the world gives an ultimatum like that. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Think about that. We don't need to give you an answer to this question. 
If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. We're not going to do it. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with happiness and joy and unicorns and rainbows and patted him on the back. No, he was filled with rage. Rage again. The expression on his face turned, changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times, more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. Did you see their response, though? They said, even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know that we're not going to serve your gods. He can rescue us, but if he doesn't. That's the response that we have to have while we live in a world of exile. Or let's bring in the New Testament. Since so many people will say the Old Testament doesn't apply, let's bring into the New Testament. Peter and John, standing before the religious leaders of the day in Acts chapter 4, 19-20, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For if we are unable, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're not going to stop telling people about Christ, about the Savior, even if it hurts your feelings. We are going to continue. So this is not a new problem. In fact, only 500 years ago, Baptists were drowned and beaten because we refused to baptize babies based on our convictions. In America, Baptists were beaten for not baptizing babies or preaching in an established church, state church, or area church. That's what was happening. We were being drowned. And you know what? It wasn't because we were the heroes. If you read the history books, the Baptists were not considered the heroes. You know, when we read them, we like to put ourselves as the heroes, don't we? We stood for our convictions, and we won. But at the time, the language being used against Baptists was that of the villain. Baptists were considered child abusers because by not baptizing them, we were depriving them of the covenant seal and allowing them to go to hell on their death. That's what was being said. They said, Baptists, because you're not baptizing babies... You are not putting the child into the covenant, and therefore you are a child abuser. That's the language being used against Baptists. But because of their conviction with the word of the Lord, they stood for what they believed and continued forward. Today, those that stand for Christian beliefs are not called heroes. I don't know if you've noticed the shift in language, but we're called bigots. We're called abusive. We're called dangerous to the common good and phobic, right? That's the ultimate language. It's phobic. Are you ready to stand? Are you ready to stand in a country that calls you abusive? Are you ready to stand in a country that calls you a bigot? In the aftermath of this Roe versus Wade decision, threats are going out. There are people that are picketing outside of churches today, this morning. Are you ready to come to church with people standing outside, picketing and calling names and threatening you? 
Are you ready to do that? To be called garbage for attending church. Because as our government becomes more and more secularized and the incentives to keep religious liberty is diminished, we are going to see more and more of this. And I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not trying to be hype you up with some lack of reality. The reality is there. The truth is in the pudding. We see it happening today. So the question is, are you ready to stand? Will you come to church even though you're going to be reviled? You know, a lot of people will say, oh, I'll die for Christ, but not many of you are willing to live for him day by day. All right? Are you scared to tell people that you go to church? Or what type of church do you go to? Oh, you go to Sierra Vista Baptist? They're, they're just homophobics over there. They're child abusers over there. They don't let their kids transition at five. All right? That's the language that you're going to hear. Because there are going to be churches, there are going to be Christians who say, no, it's cool. Go ahead. We'll celebrate. Because there's already happening. There's already compromise. And more and more it's going to happen. You, and you will, not, only, not only will you be reviled for being holy, you are going to be punished for being holy. You will be punished. Especially you younger generation. You know, my generation. My kids' generation. Me as a dad, I have to prepare my children for this reality. Wicked people will use whatever means necessary, and often it is the government. Haman used what was at his disposal, his connection to the king and the money that he had. Look at verse 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, there's a car dealership already in Persia, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month and fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. So now Haman is consulting the gods as to when he is going to cause damage to the Jewish people. He's trying to find the right day and the right time. He's, he's using the spiritists and the medians. He's, he's consulting the gods by casting lots. And they're throwing them out for each month and each day trying to figure out what day it's going to happen. The lot comes down to Pur, or, or excuse me, not Pur, but it comes down to the month of Adar, which is interesting because this is now going to become a Jewish holiday, a Jewish festival, the Purim. So this is the, the, the result. So the Jewish people began to celebrate this festival after Esther rescues them through God. Verse 8, then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom. Listen to this. Keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. These guys are dangerous to the common good. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction and I will pay... 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. So if you think about this, King Xerxes just failed in his conquest of Greece, and he has probably some money, some cash flow issues going on. He needs the money. So it works out really well because this guy is willing to give him a lot of silver. Verse 10, the king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son 
of Hamadetha, the Agaite, the enemy of the Jews. See the repetition. Remember, in Jewish literature, if there's repetition, it's important. Then the king told Haman, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The government is manipulated. So just as King Ahasuerus, because I've been practicing that a lot, I'm just going to keep saying it, because he was a drunk and executed, or, or not executed, told his wife not, or removed his wife, the manipulation that the government has is seen here as well. And so now the law was manipulated for um, punishing people who would not respect his wife, or wives that would not respect their husbands, the law that was made uh, several chapters ago. The same thing is happening here. The laws are being manipulated for the good of whoever is in control. And so the government is, in, is, um, is, is being manipulated. So the Jews, they're different. They don't bow down to our gods. They don't follow our customs. They are a threat to society. And he said, not only that, they're all over the place. They're not in just one region. They're scattered throughout the kingdom. They're scattered throughout your kingdom, your empire, and they are disruptions to society. And we know this because the Jews called to be holy everywhere they went. They obeyed the law of God, or at least attempted to formally, and they looked different. They wore their hats. They wore their hair. They wore different clothing than everybody else. They looked different. They did not participate in the same things that everybody else did. And if you remember how people would think about this, if you're not worshiping the God of this or the God of that, you are a threat to society because the gods, was, you're harmful to society. And of course, we see the bribe of 375 tons of silver. Haman is a rich man able to just spend money on whatever he wants. Uh, kind of like Bill Gates buying a bunch of land. You know, what's that about? So, of course, the king approves of this. The treasury may be a little low after the rebuilding of the army, after defeating Greece. So, man, this is, this is playing right into King Ahasuerus' uh, desires, isn't it? So, just like when the royal officials came to him and said, let's go look for young virgins, and you could have a new lady every night, same thing is happening here. Let me give you money. So, greed and lust are being taken advantage of. And then 12 through 15, we see the government in confusion. The government that's meant for good is now in disruption. Look at verse 12 with me, please. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. So now we see someone else in charge. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. 
a copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. That's a pretty heavy statement. So what we see here is the vast power structure of Persia is now put into into action to allow the murder of the Jewish people. They use the technology of the day, the best technology of the day, which was a system of laws and rules that were supposedly unbreakable. No one could change them. Once they're put out into place, you have to obey. They have this vast road network throughout the whole kingdom. Not only that, they were well known for their mail system. They had one of the best postal systems in the world at the time, and they had almost like a Pony Express. And they were using all the best things that a government should have in order to murder these people. But not only that, did you see all the translation that went into place? They had to translate it into every language of the local people. This was a massive effort of the government to exterminate a people group. We've never seen that in the history of the world, have we? So all this went into the extermination of the Jewish people, all because one man hated the Jews and the king allowed it to happen. And this was set aside for one day, one day where everyone could take up arms and kill their Jewish neighbor. And this new command led to confusion. The first place that would gain the knowledge of this upcoming day of death for the Jews was Susa, the the fortress city. The people probably were wondering about the situation or the reason for this. Now I want you to imagine the questions. If it can be done to this one people, it can be done to any of us. right? If one people group can be exterminated, any people group can be exterminated. Fear and confusion are the devil's tools to manipulate people. Think about the fear that would have been there. And so instead of standing up against this kind of decree, the people are afraid of being next. And so instead of standing up, they're hiding. When things are beyond our power, we can have fear and confusion or we can stand in the truth. You know, we can read this story and see the parallels in our own history and in the history of the world. What hope do Christians have today? What hope can we rest in? Because the government could be done to do the same thing. They could choose to outlaw Baptists, or at least the, the Baptists they don't like at some point. First Peter 4, 12-19 says, Dear friends, Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when His glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. That hits hard for the gossips. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will... Did you hear that? Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Friends, don't be surprised when they call you names because of Christ. But I think, I think there's also some warning here. Don't be called names because you're a jerk for Jesus. All right, there's, there's the alternate where we can be so adamant that we become jerks, that we treat people not with kindness, but harshly. And I think that's the tendency. I mean, if I was Mordecai, and I just heard that there's a decree against all the ethnic people, my response may be like, man, I should have let those assassins assassinate King Ahasuerus instead of saving him. But instead, we see something different. So our passage this morning has shown us that the people of God will be despised by the world. Not only that, they will use the government to force their view. Now, while we don't need to fear them, instead we trust in God to protect us, we can rejoice that we are suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be super honest with you right now. This will be hard when this happens. You must treasure Christ above all things. He must be your treasure daily. It's, it's almost like we're in a, in a war against the wicked things of this world. And if you don't treasure the Lord, you will fall. You will crumble. So it's my prayer to you that you will treasure Christ above all. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we have enjoyed so much freedom in this country. Freedom to worship the way that we want. Freedom to gather however we want. But it seems like the tides have, have turned, the, the winds have changed. Lord, we are beginning to enter a season where we're probably going to be a lot like the countries of, of Africa, where people are being threatened and killed for their faith. Lord, it's possible it may be a long way off, but it's also possible it could happen overnight. Lord, I pray that we would be ready for the fiery trial that we may face. We may just face insults instead of physical harm. But after watching what happened a, a couple of years ago in the summer and in the streets, it would not be a surprise to me if the world would change. So, Father, I pray that you would make us ready, that we could rejoice in our suffering, that we can celebrate being called the name of Christ, for they executed our Savior. Lord, we, uh, we humble ourselves before you. Father, we pray for those who are struggling across the world. We look at China, where they have been experiencing persecution for a long time, longer than, than we have. And their faithfulness and their desire to treasure Christ above 
any governmental power or control or comfort. Father, we, we thank you that you are worthy. And Father, we pray that we would be found worthy. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. The sad news is you're going to be left with a cliffhanger for two weeks because we'll have some guest preachers.